In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I have the great pleasure to interview legendary composer John Debney, whose work for the Walt Disney Company has spanned many decades and many different types of projects, from the films to the theme parks and much more. Um, On this episode, primarily we talk about his roots uh, as a musician and ultimately composer and working for the Walt Disney Company. He talks a little bit about his background, his father having um, been a major player in the early days of the studio, um, and ultimately the work that John continues to produce for Disney today. Uh, A couple notes I want to recognize before we begin. One is that John makes reference to a Halloween-themed event um, that actually occurred in the past now. It was on October 30th. Uh, This recording took place shortly before Halloween. So just a little retroactive note there. Um, Also, I make reference to some of his non-Disney work, including that for Universal's uh, Liar Liar, which is a great film uh, with Jim Carrey. Uh, I attribute the main theme to John, but actually it was his his composer colleague, James Newton Howard, who was responsible for that. But John Debney um, contributed to much of the score. Um, So just a few quick notes there and uh, certainly uh, appreciate uh, John offering some clarification on that front. So with those notes aside and the introduction aside, I'm now going to head right into that interview with composer John Debney. Emmy Award winning and Academy Award nominated composer John Debney has been part of our Disney lives for several decades from his work on television and in the theme parks to the big screen. His enchanting scores from the spirited sounds associated with the Sanderson sisters in Hocus Pocus to the hip flair of the Emperor's New Groove are really nothing short of sensational. Today on Notably Disney, we talk about his storied career, which has entailed scoring some beloved Disney films, including two movies commemorating their 20th anniversary very soon, uh, those being The Emperor's New Groove, um, and then in next year, uh, The Princess Diaries. Uh, So I really cannot express how much of it 
how uh, much of it is an honor and an exciting day to be talking with you, John. Welcome to Notably Disney. Thank you, Brett. What a pleasure. I've uh, known about your great work for a while and have heard you're just wonderful and I'm delighted to be here with you. Oh, I appreciate that. And uh, when, when I think of Disney composers or, or people who have contributed to the company in the specific manner, uh, you're really one of the top individuals who comes to mind, as I mentioned, you're um, range of work has encompassed so many different branches of the corporation and briefly talked about this prior to the start of recording. Um, for, for listeners who may not know about you, and, and I certainly have uh, done my research on you and was really intrigued to learn that your Disney career really emerged in your earliest days as a child uh, with your father working at the studio and getting to know key figures like the Sherman Brothers could you maybe share with us a little bit about what aspects of the company most appealed to or connected with you, given that you had such an, um, a unique vantage point? Well, thank you for that question. I'll, I'll try to give you a brief history, if I may. Um, my father, Lou Debney, worked at Disney Studios for, I think, approximately 40 plus years, 44 years or something like that. His story is great without Get, you know, giving you a long-winded answer to your question, but his story started as a 16-year-old boy uh, during the Depression, had to drop out of school, and, you know, had to make some money, so he was selling newspapers on the corner of Hyperion Street and something else. I don't know what the other street was, but suffice to say, every morning, as fate would have it, and, you know, sometimes fate uh, takes over. My dad was selling papers and every morning a young Walt Disney would drive by and stop at the corner and buy a, a newspaper from my dad. So my dad was probably about 15, 16 then. And every day, you know, after a while, my dad got to know Walt a little bit and he stopped there every day. So my dad would ask him, started to ask Walt uh, for a job. And, you know, during the depression, it, days and as now jobs are precious so uh he got to know walt he kept asking walt and one day walt said hey hey kid you know we're gonna start this we're gonna get in go into a um, bigger facility on hyperion uh street and if you'd like to come over you know i think i can probably give you a job so that's how my dad started he got a job there his first uh production i believe was snow white where he was the clapper boy, you know, the, the clapper when, when they're going to film. Absolutely. And my dad, I have some wonderful pictures of my dad. And my dad then spent, so he was there at the beginning. Uh, and he spent his whole career there and was part of the family, part of the early Disney family. And, um, you know, worked all the way up to around 1982 or three, something like that. Retired. I think it's 65 and uh, you know, I came along in the, in the late fifties and we just had that wonderful idyllic. Uh, I, I had an idyllic upbringing. I was an only child. And one of the m most wonderful things about being a Disney brat, as we call them, was you get these little perks. You get to go to the studio a lot. You get to go to Disneyland and, I would do that with with my mom and dad, and we would go and and uh, go to 
events at the studio and things at, at Disneyland. And so I was really brought up in the Disney family, knew, knew the Disneys quite well. Uh, the Walkers, the Millers, you can name a bunch of the, the names from those days. Um, and I, I grew up uh, on that back lot at Disney Studios. So lo and behold, you know, as, as time went on, I started playing guitar and piano at, at around age six. I sort of had an immediate love for music and started to write songs and then, you know, was in bands as a teenager. And then as time went on and I got to finally got to college, um, I was a double major drama and music. And, um, you know, just kind of gravitated because music is my first love. And lo and behold, got my degree at CalArts, which is a, you know, Disney sort of sponsored school out here in SoCal. And, um, you know, I, I got a job after I got out of college. I guess it was around age 20 or 19. And I got a job in the music department at Disney Studios. Um, yes, I bet my dad had a little little bit of a <laughs> part in getting me a, a little job there, but it, nonetheless, it was a start. And I started, I worked there on staff at Disney Studios for a number of years. Um, and, you know, was involved with doing, that's where I really at the studio started to do things for theme parks. Uh, started working with Buddy Baker, another uh, incredible legend over at the studio, composer. Um, and I sort of became Buddy's guy. Buddy was my mentor, and I was back in those days writing things for Epcot and Disneyland, Disney World. I ended up doing parades a little later in, in the whole uh, chronology of it all. I, I did Spectro Magic. I did a lot of parades. And lo and behold, spent about four or five years at the studio. When Michael Eisner came in and there was a regime change, that my dad had retired by then around, I guess, 84, 5, 6. And I left and became freelance. And have been doing freelance work ever since. And luckily, all the while doing things for Disney. Um, be they TV shows, films, uh, park attractions. And I just, you know, at some point I need to really get a great detailed list about everything I've done at the studio because other than Dick Sherman, I think I've done, <laughs> my friend Dick Sherman and the legend that he is, I think I've done quite a bit and maybe are, am on a list somewhere of the most, uh, you know, the most music written for Disney. Uh, I'm not saying that that's the truth, but it feels that way. And I'm really grateful. I, I don't even know where to start <laughs> based on so many interesting points you brought up there, John. One, one thing that struck me is perhaps the parallels between your father and Walt, both uh, selling newspapers at a very young age and that being uh, kind of the early days of their respective careers, that that's an interesting uh, similarity. Well, it is. And um, he, my dad and Walt had a wonderful relationship. My dad was the, I guess you'd call him the, the go-to guy at the studio for, a, for many, many years. He was uh, 
not able to serve in World War II. You, I guess you'd say it was 4F or something. He probably had flat feet or something. But um, he, during the war years, uh, he was working with Frank Capra and doing a lot of those war era shorts. Um, so my dad had a very, very parallel and storied career with Walt. And honestly, my dad was a fixture at the studio. Uh, everybody loved him. And, um, you know, it, it just was one of those things, fate, <laughs> the fate of it all. And um, I think Walt got a kick out of my dad. He, he was very, my dad was very funny and, and positive and a snappy dresser back in those days. And so, yeah, it's quite the story. And, uh, you know, it, it is kind of deep. And I, I've told people before the blood of, I think, the Disney blood, as it were, runs really deep in me. And, uh, you know, it's just because of that history that I've had through my dad and then my own history with the company. Well, it's really nothing short of remarkable based on you illustrating the wide variety of projects you've been involved in over the years, because you have had a hand in so many aspects of the company. One um, area that comes to mind, you talked about kind of the early days of, of Eisner, the early mid uh, 80s in particular. And I think of um, your, your work for, for Disney television being really a foundational piece of your career, uh, various projects um, yeah. for the channel. Absolutely. I, I have a dubious distinction that I was the, the one that started doing the background music to the voice of Disney, we called it, which, which were the Michael Eisner uh, intros every Sunday night. And so that was my sort of first foray into the new regime. And I did a whole lot of those. Um, Michael Eisner was very kind to me. Um, and, you know, those, those TV foray, those forays into TV led to, you know, TV specials, led to other theme park attractions. And then uh, slowly but surely, I guess we'd skip forward a little bit, and around 1992 or three was when Hocus Pocus happened for me, and that just kind of opened up a floodgate of feature work for Disney, and again, just so grateful to be in the right place at the right time, I guess. Well, and I think it's also illustrative of not only good timing and, and luck, but also the qualities that that you as a composer bring. And certainly I'm not just saying this to, to flatter you, but in, in terms of being able to produce music that is so evocative and transportive to a particular place and time, I think that's a really signature characteristic of someone who knows how to capture the mood in a very uh, appropriate manner. Um, Thank you. You know, it, it's, it, it's all, it also helps if you get great projects like Hocus Pocus, like Princess, you mentioned. And, uh, you know, couldn't be more thrilled to, uh, Hocus Pocus really was a fluke, by the way. There's a, there's a quick story on Hocus Pocus. Um, my, my late great friend, James Horner, was going to do Hocus Pocus, was going to do the score. He had started to work on it and had written that iconic uh, Sarah, Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker song, Come Little Children. James had written that, but he his schedule had changed, and all of a sudden he got into a, a real bind. And 
there was a moment when, uh, you know, he had to bail off that project. And I was one of the couple, two or three people that took a meeting on Hocus Pocus. And um, I guess the, the meeting went well. And um, next thing you know, I'm writing, gosh, almost 90 minutes of big orchestral witchy music in about two weeks or two and a half weeks. And uh, it was a whirlwind. And again, that kind of started my film career. I find that pretty um, compelling on, on a few different levels. And, and I know Bruce had even told me in, in talking with him about the notion of sometimes stepping in for another composer who, who cannot take the project. And I know that's been a, a quality that you've been able to, to lend to many films as, as a reliable um, and uh, really qualified person to compose scores under pressure. I, yeah, I, I, I'm thankful that I'm able to do that. And it does seem that I've done a, quite a bit of that and Hocus being one of them. And, you know, Emperor's New Groove was another one. I replaced Mark Shaman, who's a wonderful composer. Uh, but what it, they changed that movie drastically and I think they needed a fresh look. And that was another situation where I was called in with very little time and had to do that score and that was just a, a joy also so sometimes i guess in those pressure packed um tight schedule situations I, I i'm for some reason i'm able to kind of kind of dive in there and, and i'm i'm thankful i don't know what what or why but i'm very grateful for that well and i certainly want to dive into some of these properties but i, I am interested in understanding your process as a composer, um, particularly under time pressures, how you approach a project. Um, you're, you're assigned the opportunity to compose Hocus Pocus, for instance, you have a few weeks. What, what tactics do you um, take to be able to figure out not only the tone of the film, but also how that shapes um, the, the instruments you incorporate, the overall orchestration, themes that recur. Could you kind of dive into that aspect? Sure. You know, the, every film is, is quite different. You know, if there's a project that I'm on that I have a lot of time, sometimes that works against your pro my process, which is, you know, uh, you overthink it. In the case of, of, let's just say, Hocus Pocus, that was um, so fast that I probably had to, I, my process is sort of like I get a job, then I sort of freak out for a day or two, you know, and with a lot of sort of prayer, like I hope I'm gonna be able to do this kind of thing. And invariably I sit at the piano or, or a keyboard and I just start pecking out notes and I sort of force myself to, you know, peck out these notes. And for whatever reason, I guess the way my mind works, um, you know, you, you get a couple of notes, you get a you get a series of notes, and that leads to another series of notes if you're lucky, and then you start putting some chords to it. And in the case of Hocus Pocus, that I had to come up with that very quickly. I remember playing a rough theme on a cassette tape <laughs> to the head of music, Chris Montan, who's a good good friend. Uh, Chris Montan was the head of music back then for all those wonderful animated shows. And I remember playing the theme for Chris on a cassette. That's my most vivid memory of, of that after spending a few days working on themes. 
And I remember Chris came up with some very, very astute comment musically. Chris is a great musician, by the way. And Chris came up with some idea about instead of going up, go down. And somehow it was a very, very cool idea. And that led to me changing the theme just a bit uh, and ended up being the theme from the movie, which is da, 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 da. Excuse my bad singing. But what captures that, that? You're good. <laughs> that was the uh, that that was the the germ of the idea. That was, you know, and and I knew it was it was all kind of triplety, which is witchy musically. Triplets are those, you know, that kind of sorcerer's apprentice thing. Right. And anticipation uh, and and is ominous at the same time. In that, yeah, it is. it is. And and I knew the witches had to be kind of scary, but they had to be fun. And uh, the, the overriding thing was fun, dark, um, and at times very funny and hilarious. And at other times really scary you know these witches were gonna steal the little girl and and you know steal the souls of all the children in Salem you know so um it had to have all those things and I might add that my good friend David Kirshner producer of the movie the writer of the movie a brilliant brilliant producer writer you know he came up with these incredible characters um timeless characters and, you know, he, I sat with David when he was telling me about the movie early on when I'd just been hired. We talked about, uh, you know, the Hoover vacuum cleaner. When they can't find the broom, they get on the Hoover and they, you know, and, and I just fell in love with these characters. Uh, and that's what spewed out of me was this sort of rich, witchy, fun sound. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other little secrets about Hocus Pocus that I won't delve into. But I guess one of the big secrets was Kenny Ortega, the director, wonderful director, told me early on. He, he said, you know, John, this is really a musical. And I said to Kenny, I goes, really, Kenny? I mean, there, there are songs. I know there's the one song. And he goes, no, no, no. What I mean by it, watch the ladies because they're always walking or dancing in step. They, they. They're always right, in, yes. in a musical cadence. And I had a great time with that because that opened up the door to what the score became, which was the, the comedic elements of the score are, are dictated by these wonderful things. As simple as, as if you recall, Brett and, and your listeners, as simple as, you know, the sisters coming down the street in lock arm and, and they're going, you know, they're going to a step. And oh, yeah. uh -huh. sometimes, sometimes they would speed up and sometimes they, you know, so I had a, a whole boatload of fun playing with that. Um, and the, you know, and the other, I mean, that, that, that's a big secret of the movie where, where I think that honestly, Kenny Ortega's brilliance really came out in, in that aspect of it, that he, he invited the ladies to just, you know, throw care to the wind and, you know, do these funny, silly bits and then, you know, move in time to 
imaginary music perhaps, but I, I think that's part of the magic of it. Absolutely, and, and certainly the, the notion of Halloween as a time of year elicits certain feelings and sentiments that you can tap into that reflect the, the, the notion of the film as uh, fun and scary all at once. Uh, an interesting parallel that kind of came to mind, John, as you were talking about the flair of the film, and certainly it's a score that's on heavy rotation um, that I listen to all the time. I feel like there are certain parallels between Hocus Pocus and E.T. in the sense of both having great orchestration, but also really tapping into that magic of youth and, and what yeah. that brings. Um, I, I, I feel like there's, there's that special quality that is illustrative uh, across both of those scores. That, well, that's so kind of you to mention, you know, my score with the great John Williams score for E.T. He, that's one of my favorites. And John, John and Jerry Goldsmith were, uh, Jerry was one of my favorites and John is one of my favorites. And um, it's, it's so, it's such a great thing that you brought up because I was thinking about it. Um, that aspect of, I mean, first of all, Halloween is my favorite holiday by far and um but that is something that i think i tapped into in my own in my own soul to kind of bring that out the idea of those timeless halloween nights when we were young and the world was at our feet and there was romance in the air you know and i allison is the the love interest in the film and i just She's so magnetic and she's such a lovely person in real life, Vanessa Shaw. And I remember writing Allison's theme um, for Hocus Pocus. That's one of the other main themes. Oh, yes. So and, romantic. And yeah, and I, well, thank you. And I just, you tapped into it. That, that was the other aspect of that movie, which I think, I think... I sense that's a reason, one of the reasons why it's now become a timeless classic because it's Halloween in all its glory and fun and yet there's this wonderful, wistful, like E.T., I, get, I think you're right, like E.T., where we all kind of envision our, our most exciting, wonderful memory of Halloween and I think that is exemplified in Hocus Pocus. It's love of family, certainly. Um, I always tell people, gosh, over the years I've done interviews about that film, and people ask me about the witches and blah, blah, blah. And I always say, you know, but it's really a love story between um, Max and his sister. And to me, that's what that movie is about. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to confess to you, Brett, I still see that movie. And so when I sit with David Kirshner, uh, who's a dear friend of mine, we always cry in the end of the movie. And I've probably seen it as most people have a hundred and whatever times I still cry. And I think it's just that it's, it's the, it's the maybe less overt, message is self-sacrifice that max in that moment of that great moment in the end of the film when he sacrifices himself for his sister and then you get the biggest payoff in the very end when uh 
when you know our our ghost i i forget his his character's name but binks the cat mm-hmm. um when he's reunited with his sister and i just think it's maybe i'm an old softy uh, but that's that's magnificent i mean that that's timeless and i think that's why this movie still holds such emotion for people in my opinion you're absolutely right and and i'm of the mindset too that a great score can only elevate the the product that you see visually and you, you mentioned that final scene i think the track is on the soundtrack is called uh, conflagration and um it's just it, it's so magnificent because it feels like the culmination of the journey i i, I believe there's some great use of percussion at the end um <laughs> yes it's just be- it's beautiful um, but there's so many so many great themes in here and I would be remiss if I didn't touch um, on just the, the notion of that there are several themes throughout the film um, that have their own distinct qualities. Um, I, I was talking prior to a recording with you, um, my friend and uh, fellow podcast guest, uh, Aaron Wallace, who actually wrote um, a book called Hocus Pocus and Focus. Um, yes, yes. And- I know the book, yep. And Aaron's a great guy and, and he uh, wanted to pass along to, to you as greetings and also to say that he really find and I find this too, so it's a kind of a shared question. There's maybe a distinct readily identifiable quality about family film scores from the 90s and perhaps mm-hmm. that's illustrative of certain eras that children grew up with. But um, in terms of the trends that you have identified in yourself in developing the composition for a score like Hocus Pocus to really capture that sense of youthful adventure, are there particular um, approaches that you fit into your framework to really um, illustrate that that notion of youth uh, and family as we just described? Boy, what a wonderful question. Um, Yes, and, and I must tell you, because you now know my little history and the secret of I, I draw upon my own upbringing, honestly, Brett, and my, my great love for my family, for my mom and dad, who, were, who couldn't have been, honestly, better, better parents. I, I really, I'm so grateful. Um, they fostered my love in music and art, and they were there for me every, every step of the way, honestly. Um, so you know, you bring up a great point that somebody brought up to me also recently about the films of the 90s and the ones that people of a certain age really remember from their childhood, childhoods and why they're so special and why they're so memorable and sort of iconic and why aren't we doing those kind of movies these days? Well, I think for me, the, the 90s held a, you know, that was sort of my, wow, I, I guess you'd call it my, my training ground. My, I was a bird let out of a cage. I was um, a young man in my 30s raising, I have, I have three boys and they were all young. And um, my <clears throat> love of family, my family and my parents, that all spills out into my music. Um, so when looking at Hocus Pocus through that lens, and and I would say maybe there are some other films, I think there are other films I've done during that period, 
that certainly were in the vein of, shall we say, Disney, Amblin. Uh, I, I've worked with Steven a few times. So that, um, I don't know, I was part of a, a really special club, Brett. I really was, where all of a sudden I'm, I'm a young guy, you know, probably your age, uh, 33, 4-ish. And all of a sudden, I was thrown into the big time, <laughs> you know, the big top. I, I had done a, lot sure. of, done a lot of television, done a lot of theme parks and all, all the above. So I had a really good training, like, you know, like Bruce Broughton. We, we've done a lot of things over the years that kind of trained us to enable us to, you know, have a career in, in film. So I would just say that to me, Hocus Pocus was uh you know at a time when love of family kids were young and it just it just spilled out from me you know i i that floodgate i hope never ends because it i i i'm a beneficiary of it today i still i find something in every movie to fall in love with whether it's a character whether it's a storyline and um in the case of Hocus, and I know we're going to talk about other films, but Hocus being so topical right now, um, it was that love of family, that love between Max and his sister that really, you know, resonated with me. And that's, I guess, why it resonates with a lot of people, um, especially girls and, and, and women now that have daughters. Um, I don't know. There's just something... There's a chord that was struck in that movie that's still, still working today, and I'm thankful. I would agree, and um, I, I tell folks a lot of times I'm uh, I didn't pursue music as a career. I play piano for fun. I've done it for probably 20 years now. But for me, I'm a I'm an education scholar, and I do a lot of deep research. But what brings me solace and comfort as I'm engaged in in this type of work is listening to film scores in the background, it provides solace and a sense of um, comfort. And I, I think of the great scores and, and yours among them offer that sense of um, focus and, and excitement because they are really reflective of the films that they come from. Um, many of your films have been in that family film category um, and, and have that really special quality to them. Well, thank you. I it's very kind of you. I um I I've just been so blessed by it all, you know, whether it's a you know, a relationship that I had with with the wonderful Gary Marshall for over 15 years, you know, when I gosh, I think I did six or seven movies with Gary, the first one being the most special in my heart, and that's Princess Diaries. And um you know, Princess Diaries, I, if we can shift gears. Princess yeah, let's Diaries, please. Princess Diaries was one of those blind uh, meetings, you know, where the head of music uh, took, at the time, Bill Green, great guy who's the head of music over at Disney at that point, took me over one day to meet Gary Marshall on the set of this movie called Princess Diaries. And, you know, I'd read the script and had made up a cassette tape, I'm sure, for Gary. and go to the set and there's, you know, a very young Anne Hathaway 
in the classroom scene and I saw them shoot a couple scenes and was just mesmerized, mesmerized by Anne Hathaway because she was just so luminescent. And I knew, I said, that girl's going to be a star. And I was right. Um, you know, then all I, the credit goes to you, John, all the credit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll take credit for that one. Um, but Gary, you know, was just, he finished the shot and then he, came up to me and Bill Green introduced me and, and it was as simple as Gary going, yeah, you know, nice to meet you, John. You know, we need music for this picture, you know? And uh, it was like that. I was hired on the spot and, um, you know, that began a wondrous journey with Gary. Uh, again, six, seven films and Prince's Diaries actually was, came in a year which was very dif difficult for me. I think that was about 2001, you would yeah. know that. Yep, absolutely. And Princess Diaries was at a very difficult moment in my life. My mom was very, very ill and my dad had passed away and many years before and my mom was had a stroke and she was very ill and wasn't gonna really make it, you know, and we were going through that process. Um, and out came the theme for Prince's Diaries. Um, so perhaps in the worst of times, you know, I, um, I guess they always say that sometimes the best work an artist can do is during the, the hardest times, the most hardship in their lives, I guess. And that was one of the moments for me. And Prince's Diaries was really the theme for my mom. And uh, boy, it just, it came out in in a rush and it, it's such a pretty theme and I get you know almost every year I get people that email me and they want to use it for their wedding etc and I'm just so I'm I'm gr so grateful for that that there are and to your point that there are themes that I've done or or music that I've done for certain films that just become sort of attached to those films and I think that's the best experience for a composer, you know, look at Star Wars with John Williams, of course, being <laughs> the best example, I think. Um, when it just becomes so hooked to the film that whenever you hear it, it, it brings you back to the film. I think that's the best payoff for a composer, honestly, is, is that, I think. I appreciate you sharing that. And and actually, I had a question for you. You, you already covered it. What are your thoughts on the, the waltz, the luscious waltz from the Princess Diaries being used for major events like wedding dances, quinceañeras, other significant moments in, in uh, people's lives? Because that, that's something distinct for someone to say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to incorporate a salient piece of music in my childhood for something that is representative of my life moving forward. Well, I'm again. There are really no words. It it it's um, it humbles me so greatly when people ask for the sheet music and you know that waltz was um, you know the way that one went. I knew I had to come up with a theme, Mia's theme, actually, and we knew the structure. We knew that the whole thing was going to culminate in a grand waltz, and. Um, so I just toiled over that, but but literally, I think that one, because of my personal circumstances, came out a little easier uh, than some themes can. 
and you know do um but it's it's terribly humbling i you know the fact that i you know i hear it in different places used at, at different times and it's again it, it's uh it's a gift that people like it and they they want to utilize it and but that that is how it works you know you think about girls of a certain age or ladies of a certain age then they probably heard that when they were in their teens and then they get married one day you know fade out fade in and they want to use something that is iconic from from their youth and uh i'm just happy that that's on the wedding list as it were because it's uh really really humbling is what i'd say for sure well and i think of um even though the princess diaries we often associate certain themes related to regality and the formal aspects of it as illustrated in um, some directions you took with the score there's a great deal of playfulness too which i think is a signature uh quality across so many of your scores where um at times it, the music can be a very quirky, even frenetic, but ultimately um, really reflecting the, the, the main character's qualities. And, and Mia certainly uh, has those characteristics. Well, she does. Um, and, and I think you just nailed the, the, um, the creative process that composers go through. If you can find that theme or two that represent the characters in a you know really lovely way that is that is the greatest payoff um i'm just you know are getting back to our friend bruce Broughton. i guess it's personality based i'm i'm a pretty fun loving person and so i think my scores reflect that um sometimes i have to rein that in to be honest with you but i think that sort of fun loving aspect of who i am you know again thank you mom and dad um that's who i am so perhaps some of these disney movies that we're talking about that that i love and you love um kind of highlight that sense of wonder it's never too dark it's never too it, it can be, you know, dark and sad. It could be all the above, but it's never, uh, at least the ones, most of the ones I've worked on, there's always that, that wink in the music, I guess I'd say. There's always that kind of wink to the, an audience letting them know that they're in on, you know, they're in on the joke. And um, I guess that's how I describe it. There's a way to have a wink to the audience and, and make it like a Hocus Pocus uh, or a Princess Diaries in, in places where it, it lets you know that this is all just like, like most Gary Marshall movies, by the way, most Gary Marshall oh, yeah. always had this wonderful, you know, kind of silly, lovely, emotional thing to them. And that was Gary that he was, brilliant at it and sometimes the comedy would be very broad but there'd always be this beautiful essential emotionality to his movies and that's why everybody loved him he was just the most wonderful guy you could meet and i think that's why all the big stars that have been in all his movies in all his movies came back time and time again because 
everything was lovely in Gary's world, you know, everything was peachy keen and, and, you know, peppy. He used to tell me he wants the music to be peppy because he never wants it to be too slow and never, you know, just make it peppy. He'd tell me. And that was Gary. He was very peppy and, and just lovely. Well, and, and that quality certainly comes through in, in his films. Um, I was thinking, you know, you also did the, the score for Raising Helen, another Gary Marshall film, which I, yes. I always enjoyed. But you, you know, you're about, I, go ahead, I'm sorry. I did, no, I was going to say, thank you for mentioning Raising Helen. Raising Helen is one of my favorite Gary Marshall movies. And sadly, I don't think it's one of his most popular, but I loved it because they, that's see that's such a great Gary Marshall story. It it you know it involves uh, loss, uh, kids and you know kids lose their mom and uh, it, it's a very gosh it's a very um, serious subject matter. But in the end of the movie, it is the most uplifting, joyful thing, and you have all these fun hijinks along the way and that was Gary it was sort of a la pretty woman and all those wonderful Gary Marshall films it, there's always fun but there's always a very deeply emotional heartfelt never over the top but heartfelt aspect to his movies and I just think he was a master at it I don't know if there's anyone that has you know done it or, or will equal what Gary Marshall gave to the world to be honest with you. Oh yeah, he was such a, a major force on television, you know, thinking about his earliest days with uh, Happy Days and, and those programs and certainly into his films. There are some other directors I can think of who have that same t type of warm quality, but um, very few in, in the same league as Gary Marshall. I also want to just briefly mention, John, um, your, your body of work for Disney. We, we were talking about some of the more I would say more visible Disney films, but you did Inspector Gadget, Snow Dogs, a bunch of films that um, people grew up on yeah. and just love. One thing I have to mention to you, because I think it's really illustrative of the, the just brilliance of a great theme. I, I remember I had this epiphany when I was planning to talk with you. When I was a young kid, I went to Universal Studios. So this was probably like the late 90s, early 2000s. And do you know in Universal Studios that um, that part where you basically go down the escalators into the lower lot? Yes, yes, I do. Yep. So, so they, so in that space, they would play different themes from Universal Pictures um, films. And I remember distinctly a, a theme, and I could not place it because I had not seen the film at that point. And I connected the dots years later, mind you, I hadn't heard the theme in a while. Liar, liar, buoyant, bum, ba, bum, ba, 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 bum. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's the quality of a really fantastic theme, where it actually sticks with you for many months or even years beyond the initial listen. Well, thank you for mentioning liar, liar. I have to give a big shout out to, and I hope I'm not boring you with my backstories. And not at all. That in your listeners, but again. Uh, here, here, I've had two Jameses in my life, James Horner being the hocus pocus in that situation. Liar, liar was James Newton Howard, 
who's one of the finest film composers that's ever lived and a friend of mine. And lo and behold, similar situation. James Newton Howard was going to do the score for Liar Liar, and he'd already written a theme. And that theme was the one you hummed. And uh, schedules changed. He couldn't finish the movie. And lo and behold, my friend James called me and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, nothing. What, what's up? And he told me the situation. He goes, look, I've, I've written a theme for this thing, but they, they need a few more themes and it needs a whole underscore. And my schedule shifted. Can you jump in and <laughs> kind of do this? And I said, of course. I mean, you know, it's like God calling, you know. And um, jumped in, had a meeting. And um, James wrote that lovely theme, da, 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 da which was just a glorious, wonderful, child, childlike theme. And then I got to write a couple of ancillary themes and I wrote a little love theme and a Max theme. Um, and, uh, you know, my job was just to, again, jump into this thing, get it done in a, in a limited amount of time. But again, I was, I was given this huge gift, which was a critical, film for me to do 97 I think was that movie and honestly Brett that was my first true hit movie Liar Liar in the same year I did I Know What You Did Last Summer in Liar Liar and they're etched in my memory as being oh wow I've got two hit movies this year <laughs> you know because mind you Hocus Pocus was not a hit movie and I thought only became a hit movie many years later. And anyway, so thank you for mentioning Liar Liar. But that was a situation where, again, I was fortunate enough to, you know, have, have a good friend in James Newton Howard. And, and uh, he said, you're going you're gonna to nail it. Just, you know, I'd love you to do it, and blah, blah, blah. So that's how that one happened. And again, I'm forever ever grateful to uh, JNH, as we call him, James Newton Howard. Oh my gosh. Well, I thank you for clarifying one that he, he composed the, the theme and it makes me think of several projects that you've been involved in where there are multiple composers responsible for the score. Um, the, the Greatest Showman recently yes. um, comes to mind as another example of mm -hmm. that. So, and shows, you know, it can be a very creative and collaborative process. Absolutely. I, I must say on that, in that regard, um, I love collaborating and I, I don't know why that is. Maybe that's the only child in me that I need. <laughs> I need the other people to bounce ideas off of. Um, but I, I like it. I, I really like the collaboration in the case of greatest showman. Wow. What a gift that was to have these amazing iconic songs. And basically my job was to, make it all work and and make a score out of it and interpolate some of the songs and just kind of stitch the whole thing together like a big quilt and that was that was something it was a lot of hard work um but the songs and the melodies were just glorious as we know so that was really really fun a lot of hard work a lot of recording um a lot of changes you know as the the film was kind of morphing into what it became, which is this huge phenomenon, 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I like the collaborative thing. And uh, I think that's, I guess that's worked for me. I, I will say it that way. For sure. And, uh, you know, I'd certainly be remiss if we didn't talk about um, maybe the third um, main Disney feature that I want to discuss with you, which is The Emperor's New Groove. And you, you mentioned earlier how you stepped in for Mark Shaman um, once the, the tone of the film went in a different direction. Yep. Um, I also have to recognize, talk about individuals who are great composers, uh, Mark Shaman, you know, most recently for, uh, more recently for Mary Poppins Returns, yeah. and, which is gorgeous, right? Mark is a wonder. I would say that Mark is, he can write in any genre. He writes, you know, my God, he writes Broadway hit Broadway shows. Um, I, I just, I have such respect and love for Mark Shaman. And, um, but yeah, that film went through, you know, different directors came on, people were fired, people came on. By the time I got to it, again, it was another sort of emergency situation where they literally wanted to go a complete different direction with the score. And I never heard what Mark did, by the way. So that, which was good because uh, they really wanted me to just get in there and do what I thought it should be. And again, not a lot of time. I didn't have a lot of time. And um, just fell in love with the director and the producer. Mark Dindle was the director and amazing guy, lovely, fun guy. And I just, I just had a ball with that, that score. It was a little of everything. You know, one of the things you mentioned that you're, you are a scholar, Brett, in the truth, you know, for real, I'm, I'm a scholar in the, in the non-literal sense. I, I've done a bit of scholarship in terms of, Style, stylistically mm-hmm. what, what Disney animated m- movies sounded like. And as opposed to, by the way, Warner Brothers, who I've also done a lot of animated work for. Um, Disney animation, I, I did a study truly in my early years of those scores from those films, you, you name them, Bambi to, you know, Sleeping Beauty, blah, 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 Snow White. Um, and so, I think what influenced me on Emperor's New Group was, first of all, have a ball, have a lot of fun, and make it really irreverent and wacky when it needed to be, because it was the wacky tone of the film that I think endeared the film to, to so many people. Um, but during some of the bigger set pieces, I went full George Bruns. And I know you probably know who George Bruns was. George, oh, yeah. Bruns, George Bruns was one of the fantastic brilliant composers at disney of that era um george bruns you know you start with oliver wallace frank churchill um you know and the list is sort of voluminous but george bruns being of an era and i i always have loved george bruns's scores because they were very iconic very classical and and jazzy uh and that's sort of what i I wanted to emulate that. So there are there are places in in the Emperor's New Groove that are just completely wacky and and kind of with bongos and they're sort of George Bruns-ish, you know, Jungle the first Jungle Book, uh, bongo-y, wild, uh, fun music for for uh, the character uh, 
Uzma or Ozma, I think. Isma, Isma, yeah. And anyway, and then for some of the big set pieces, the rescue and and some of these other big, you know, five to eight minute pieces of music, I went very um, classical because that's sort of what the Disney composers, the earlier ones, did. Um, and I loved that. So that's getting under the hood. That's what that score was for me. It was, um, call it an homage, really, to a lot of those guys that, that preceded me that um, worked on those great Disney films. And that's sort of what I did. And, and honestly, that film turned out so well. And I, I uh, remember getting a really wonderful, lovely note from Michael Eisner uh, after he saw the picture. I th in fact, I think at the premiere, I was sitting in front of him and he was behind me with, with his family, I, I think. And I just remember him laughing, you know, so many times. And I remember getting this really sweet uh, little note a day or two later and saying, Oh my God, John, you, you nailed this. I can't thank you enough. All best Michael Eisner. And you know, th those little moments, those notes you get from, Spielberg or Eisner are just such, I mean, they're treasures to me. And, but, you know, that was another situation where, okay, we're in trouble. Who are we going to get? And I was the huge beneficiary of that trust um, that the studio has had in me. Well, and it's, I feel like it's a perfect fit and, and representation of what you can accomplish with a score in terms of capturing um, that irreverent tone, but also the, kind of sweeping um, themes that are kind of, as you said, harkening back to the early days of Disney. One theme or cue, John, that I could listen to all day and I really feel like is a, a good representation of your capacity as a composer is the Run Llama Run uh, <laughs> cue. Um, oh, so, so glad you mentioned that. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll incorporate this into the background so folks are familiar, but okay. big, it's a big band. There's great percussion. My gosh, it's just a, a wild treat to listen to. Well, God bless you for saying that, Brett. Uh, that was so much fun. Uh, you know, my th that piece of music came from my talking to the director. We, you know, we knew there had to be some kind of very fun music in there. Uh, it wasn't a song. And so I don't know how, but I came up with the idea. I was listening to Benny Goodman. And oh, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, a Sing Sing Sing. You know, just all those classic big band things. I've done a lot of the arranging for big bands in my youth. Uh, so I, I love big band music, and I love music from the 40s, you know, big band, 40s, 50s. And so I thought, God, how fun would it be to, I, they must have maybe put in probably Sing 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 or something like that in there to give me a flavor. Um, but I had to, you know, I had to change it and go through different variations. And then I came up with the idea of having the musicians, you know, yell out, run, llama, run. And that became kind of, it's infectious and you know the filmmakers loved it <laughs> and i'm glad you like it it was um really really fun to do and, and yet it had to be scored so it wasn't just 
you know, a big band piece of music for two and a half, three minutes or whatever it was. It had to be scored and hit things. And uh, we had a ball. We just had a ball recording it. Oh, well, I, uh, it, it definitely is uh, palpable as a, as a listener. Um, I, I recently rewatched re the film and it's always been one of my favorites and it has such a peppy spirit to it that um, you, you talk about your, your work in the past for Warner Brothers and certainly um, really honoring the rich Disney legacy. And I feel like that film in, it, in its essence is a, a perfect encapsulation of both the best of, of Warner Brothers and Disney. And then your, the, the score that you composed it um, in kind of incorporating those various elements, the silliness, the zaniness, but also the heart. Uh, well, thank you. And, and that's very kind of you. You know, and let's not forget, there was a wonderful number of Sting songs. Oh, my that. gosh. Yes. Oh, my God. And, and I'll tell you, the Sting melody, da, 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 na, 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 na. Mm. That is such a gorgeous melody. I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, my God. So that truly became the one of the main themes in the movie you know the friendship theme Pacha's theme or whatever whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. um, and that was man sting Whew. Uh, i can't say enough that that man can write write music and wrote great songs and that you know the other thing that inspired me was that opening number oh uh, perfect world yes oh boy and wow I mean, I remember hearing that track. I think they had done that track early in the process. And I think, I think it was, I'm not sure if that track might've, I think it was done here. I do remember the pianist was a London based pianist who's a friend of mine now. He's become a very good friend of mine. Um, and I remember hearing that track and that arrangement going, wow. And so that, that led me honestly on a path to you know infusing it uh, infusing the score with some of that that attitude and be it big band or or being it you know little latin flavored here and there um but yeah so again there's that that collaboration thing i i think um the stars aligned and you know and that was a very uh, very de big departure for Disney. Uh, to this day, I don't know how embraced that film is by Disney, but boy, it was such a such a hit, and it inspired you know the TV show and and other things. And then you know John Lasseter, who's a buddy of mine, when he came in, you know that he redefined uh, what what it became you know and what it became was just glorious um but emperor's new groove was sort of right before john came in <laughs> and then it all went down that path that we all know and love and so i think groove uh, ends up being an outlier kind of in a good way i, I think people dig it because it's just so irreverent and so funny well, and then there's a parallel once again to Hocus Pocus, a film that perhaps wasn't a box office smash, but has developed that cult classic status and, and the signature elements, whether it be the characters, the storytelling, and certainly the score, I think all kind of develop a very cohesive package that uh, really warrants multiple viewings. 
Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm going to make one other confession. I knew in my heart of hearts that Hocus Pocus was, I mean, I didn't know at the time, but like my fervent wish and, and sort of private prayer was, gosh, I'll, I, I hope people one day discover this movie. And man, it happened. You know, when the Disney Channel came to being, into being, and uh, Hocus Pocus took on, you know, had a second life on the channel. And, you know, people started watching the channel and they started seeing Hocus Pocus every Halloween. And and sometimes in the middle of summer. I mean, it, it was always playing. And again, so grateful. Uh, who knew? Because when Hocus came out in the... I don't know why they. I know why they brought it out in July, but it was because I. I don't think they wanted to interfere with Nightmare on, you know, Nightmare. Right. Uh, which I guess was right. Uh, however, July with a Halloween movie didn't seem like it was that smart. But hey, I guess in a weird way it kind of worked for the movie. Um, you know, it 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 found its audience and. Here we are, you know, they're talking about a, a number two and um, there's a special coming up that I hope everybody tunes into. There's a, a special coming up on the, I think it's on the 30th that Bette Midler is spearheading and I'm involved with. Um, it's for charity for kind of rebuilding New York City and I, it's a very worthy charity and I hope those of your listeners uh, will maybe, you know, you pay a couple of dollars and you're going to get a great show. It's a reunion show and hope everybody tunes in. Wonderful. John, we've talked a lot about um, your past projects. I certainly want to recognize that you are continuing to produce work. Um, as we wrap up, what are some new projects or current projects that you're engaged in that we should expect from you? Well, I'd love, thank you for asking me, Brett. Um, I've been doing, I'd say even in these difficult times, I have been blessed. I've been working on some of my favorite movies I think I've ever worked on. And that's saying a lot. I've done, I've done quite a few movies. Um, let me just start with Jingle Jangle, which is a musical that's coming out on Netflix in the theaters and streaming uh, November 13th. It is a wonder. It is, um, it's a musical with great songs. I didn't write the songs, but I got to arrange a number of them, wrote the underscore. Uh, it's called Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Story or A Christmas Adventure or Christmas Journey or something like that. Um, that was directed by the wonderful David E. Talbert. Um, it's just a remarkable film. It's uplifting. It's life affirming. It's joyful. It's a film that I hope everybody sees because for times like this, we need a film like Jingle Jangle. It's just wonderful. Forrest Whitaker is Oscar worthy, I think, in this film. Um, it's just wonderful. I'm also, in the past year, I worked on a film called Come Away, which is a wonderful film with Angelina Jolie and uh, David Oy Oyo. I, can't, I can never say his name. Before. Right. Yellow. Yes, yes, yes. Wonderful actor. Uh, and it's called Come Away, and, it, and it's a fanciful story about what if Peter Pan and Wendy were brother and sister. And, uh, and so it's, it's magical. And I 
wrote that score earlier this year. And then I just also, gosh, I'm so lucky. I did uh, a Jennifer Lopez movie called Marry Me, which is a nice rom-com. I get to go back to my rom-com roots. That's coming out next Valentine's Day. And, you know, and I, I don't, I'm not bragging. I'm just, you know, lucky. I'm grateful. Sure. Um, and I'm, I just finished Clifford, the big red dog. So for parents out there that, you know, have kids that have read them that book a million times, I think you're going to love this movie that comes out uh, sometime next year. I think March, April of next year. So I've just been, um, I've been a busy beaver and love it. And again, so grateful that during these really tough, horrible times, I'm able to write music. And I hope that it's the kind of thing where when people hear the, the music I write, I always want to uplift people if I can, you know, give them a little joy, give them a little, a little uh, light, lightness in, in some dark times. And so that's the way I look at what I do. I, I, I'm, I just want to throw it out there and hopefully it'll make people get them through their day a little easier. Absolutely. Well, I'd say mission accomplished from me personally. And as I mentioned, listening to some of your scores as, as I engage in my work and I imagine for other folks as well. Wow. Really prolific, you. John. You're, you're continuing to really deliver in a wide variety of genres as you, as you mentioned too. So. Yeah, I love it. I, I guess I'm a little uh, schizophrenic like that. I like, like to do different kinds of things and, and I love every minute of all of it. So, but thank you, Brad. It's been great talking to you today. Absolutely. Well, and if we can, I'd love to just quickly ask you some different Disney-related uh, opinion questions. Um, sure. First off, um, these are common ones that I ask every guest, um, especially those with music backgrounds. Is there a Disney soundtrack that you listen to most while growing up? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, you know, the two that really made an impression on me early, Bambi was one that I still think that's such a gorgeous score. And I would have to say Mary Poppins. Uh, you know, I, we didn't get to chat about the Sherman Brothers much, but I'll just say this, that my dad was very good friends with the Sherman Brothers, and I got to know them at a very young age, and they were, wow, they were in, very instrumental in me uh, wanting to be a composer, wanting to write music. And I remember going on the set of Mary Poppins a couple of times. And I, mean, I went to the bank scene and there was another scene in the house I went to, I forget which scene. And I just, I think Mary Poppins, if I had to crystallize it down to one, it would be Mary Poppins. Those songs, that score by Erwin Kostel, um, the chimney sweep uh, sequence is still, to me, one of the best choreographed sequences in film. Um, so I'd have to say, if, if you twisted my arm, said pick one, I'd say Mary Poppins. And you can't go wrong with that by any means. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. And I have to, I have to laugh. You, you said that the Sherman brothers were very instrumental. No pun intended, yeah. right? Well, no pun intended. Actually. Pun intended. Okay, there you go. You said it with a straight, a straight of yeah, voice. I did. So. I did. I did. Very nice. Um, John, how about a Disney song that most recently got stuck in your head? 
Oh, so you, the recent uh, recent songs? Yeah, so uh, it doesn't have to be that it came out recently, but is there a song that very recently became stuck in your head? Well, yes. Um, any Alan Menken <laughs> song. Uh, Alan, I mean, my God. Um, I think I'd say Little Mermaid, you know. Um, I think any of the songs from Little Mermaid, they, they still to this day just, uh, they're just Xeroxed on, onto my brain. You know, it, it's, um, I don't know what that magic fairy dust that, that Alan has, but he certainly has it, still does. And um, I just think Little Mermaid, I, I think that, that that film, those songs, and then, you know, you could name any of the other ones that he's done, the huge ones he's done, but that, um, is it somewhere out there? What, what's the name of the song, the iconic song from? From, from Little Mermaid? Yeah. Yeah, Part of Your World. Part of Your World. Yeah. That's it. You know, da 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 Oh, gosh. You know what popped in my head? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That's a Paul, great score. Paul Smith. Yes. Now, th those you would know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners would know that name, but Paul Smith was one of a cadre of unsung heroes, as, as I know you'd agree, Brett, that, that plied their trade at Disney, really through their whole career, and Paul Smith wrote a number of just wow scores, um, did a lot of the true life adventure scores, did, did other movies for them. But that score to this day, when you first see the lights under the water, that, sub, that thing under the water, and you hear this score, it's almost like, I wonder if John Williams was influenced uh, by that score for Jaws. It's very, it's very evocative. One reminds one, you know, the, the 20,000 League score reminds me, and it was written way before Jaws, of course. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just, they're of a kind. And I, I always loved Paul Smith. And I made a point early in my life that I noticed the, the credits and Paul Smith, that that name stuck in my head. And still to this day, it's just, being a really, really fine, fine, shall we say, Disney composer. And there have been many fine Disney composers, but he he was really, really at the top of my list of Disney composers. Oh, he's a good shout out. And that's a really, uh, I think, iconic score because it, it captures the mystery and ethos of the Nautilus. And that yes. theme is very salient, as, as you said that, like, dun, 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 dun. It has a very deep undertone to it. It does. And there's some kind of romantic quality to the music, you know, when they're coming into the island. And uh, it, it's just, I don't know. That's a great score. And uh, wherever you are, Paul, thank you for that work. Absolutely. 
final question for you is a unique question for you. You've written so many great scores over the years, um, many Disney film scores among them. Do you have, and this is a really odd question perhaps, John, but I'll ask you anyways, do you have a favorite instance of using an a particular instrument in a special way to fit into a track or the score? So I oh think- Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, one that Go just for it. Well, one, it comes right to my, the, my mind. Uh, Jungle Book, my, the recent one I did with John Favreau, is, could be my favorite score that I've ever worked on. And it's, it could be my favorite for all those reasons that we talked about. Um, my history with the company, um, I ended up getting to work with Richard Sherman, um, who wrote an, a new lyric for I Want to Be Like You. And um, to answer your question, the instrument I would say was I got to use a ukulele in Jungle Book. And guess who played that ukulele? None other than the amazing, brilliant, um, iconic John Favreau. John Favreau is a wow. great, he's a great, he plays a great uh, ukulele and he's a wonderful guy. And of course, the rest is history. Now the world knows the brilliance of John Favreau. I always knew it, um, having done five films with him or so. Um, but it's that ukulele in Jungle Book. And I, I'll never forget when I asked John if he'd be willing to play the ukulele part on I Want to Be Like You. And he really didn't hesitate. He goes, sure. And we went and he did it and he nailed it. So for me, it's that ukulele part on Jungle Book that John Favreau played is probably my favorite memory of any instrument uh you know kind of oddball instrument that i've used that, that's a great illustration i love that um one that i really enjoyed um is with thinking back to the princess diaries i think you used the harp at a certain point um oh yeah there's a, a lot, lot of, of harp a lot of harp a lot of solo cello um Solo cello is my favorite instrument. I mean, a cello is my favorite instrument. So, um, yeah, diaries, lots of harp, lots of harp in that. Of course, it's Princess Diaries. Yeah, but it's not sappy. It's not like no. where you're going to roll your eyes. It actually is, is really soothing and, and pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Well, Gary loved the harp, too, I must say. Gary Marshall loved the harp. And there were certain instruments he loved. And he, he did love the harp. And so I made sure to feature it. I'm, I'm, you know, I can learn quickly. I knew he liked the harp, so I featured it through that score. Wonderful. Well, let's wrap up. How can listeners make sure to follow your work uh, and you on social media? I know you mentioned some of the projects that are debuting over the coming months, but how can listeners make sure they stay tuned to your, your productions? Oh, thank you for that. I, you know, we've got a very, I've got a very active presence on Instagram um, that would be probably the best thing. My website, you know, we were just updating it right now. And if you can go to John, just go to johndebney.com. And that's my website. And there'll be all kinds of, um, you know, new news. And it'll highlight the newest things I've been working on. And love everybody to go there and follow me on Instagram. And hopefully they like some of the work that's coming up. Great. John, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure, honor to talk with you. I've enjoyed your stories and your humility and 
um, ultimately the, the lingering gifts that all of us get in when we turn on a piece of music that you've uh, composed over, over the years. So thank you very much. Oh, Brett, you've, you've been lovely and, and kind and you did your homework and it was a joy. So let's do it again. Absolutely. We didn't even cover the theme park work. So that's for another day, I think. <laughs> That'll be part two. <laughs> so thank you, Brett. It's always gratifying as a Disney fan, as someone who really appreciates scores to be able to talk with the people behind them. Uh, so the conversation I had with John was an absolute joy, uh, very kind and generous with his time. Uh, certainly appreciated the opportunity to have such a rich dialogue and, and to cover so many different aspects of his film career. I think there's a lot more to be uncovered uh, and certainly I would point you in the direction of some of the other great interviews that he has conducted uh, over recent years. He was on the Four Scores podcast uh, which is produced by Disney. He talked um, more about his Jungle Book work there. He's also been on uh, Disney Coast to Coast and other uh, other different uh, shows. So certainly uh, John's career is quite robust and, and quite the fulfilling experience. You can just hear John's enthusiasm, it's palpable, it's totally real, and um, greatly appreciate it, John. Hope you all enjoyed this conversation. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.